This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Massachusetts collects 5% income tax from all earners in the Commonwealth. This flat tax structure is enshrined in our state's constitution, the oldest in the nation. Currently, a new legislative amendment labeled by its advocates as a fair share amendment would impose an additional 4% tax on any household's income above $1 million. The stated need for this tax is to provide an additional $2 billion of revenue in needed investments in the Commonwealth's education and transportation systems. Advocates insist all new taxes will fall to wealthy payers who can readily afford it and for whom the recent pandemic may have had little or no effect. Their confidence seems bolstered by a recent poll conducted by the Massachusetts Teachers Union that suggests 73% of Massachusetts residents support this change. But advocacy groups such as Raise Up Massachusetts, a coalition of community activists and labor unions, may temper their enthusiasm with the awareness that similar tax schemes have been put to the Massachusetts voters in the past and been soundly rejected five times. Surely, to get past legislators and voters, advocates must make clear why the state government needs more revenue, where funds will go, and what will be the likely long-term effect of this constitutional change on our Commonwealth. My guest today is Jim Sturgis, Managing Director of Pioneer Institute. Mr. Sturgis's think tank has conducted research to examine the likely effects of a fair share amendment by studying both the effects of similar legislation in other states, as well as the likely secondary effects such changes are likely to have in the future. Mr. Sturgis has offered written testimony to the Massachusetts Legislature's Joint Committee on Revenue, outlining the reasons for his organization's concerns, including how the amendment will not merely lead to unintended negative long-term consequences to our Commonwealth, but that it will not achieve the stated benefits its advocates advance. When I return, I'll be joined by the Executive Director of Pioneer Institute, Jim Sturgis. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Jim Sturgis, Executive Director of Pioneer Institute. Welcome back to the show, Jim. Oh, it's really great to be with you. Well, Jim, um, we're going to talk about today the um, uh, what's called HB 86. It's a so-called fair share amendment. Uh, you've written quite extensively on this. Uh, some of the topics uh, that touch on uh, the consequences of HB 86, we've addressed on Hubwonk. So I want to tie it all together for the benefit of our listeners who aren't uh, knee deep in this issue. What is HB 86? What is the legislation? How does it come to being? And how is this likely to affect our listeners in the future? Yeah, sure. So this is a a long-standing issue. This is actually a proposal that was put together seven years ago, Joe. This is well before pandemic, before we knew anything about COVID-19. We not even heard a whisper of that. Uh, So it's a proposal that was back in a different um, economic time, really. This is uh, when it was first hatched, I think 2014. Uh, that was the last year that uh, the Rainy Day Fund was actually had any withdrawal from it in, in seven years since then. Even during COVID, we've not had any money taken out of the Rainy Day Fund, which is for uh, for occasions when there's an emergency. You would have thought that over the last year that would have been the case. It's a proposal that would do the following. It would raise uh, taxes on those people who or households who earn over $1 million in any way possible, whether it's through a pass-through business capital gains, 
uh, individual earnings. Uh, it would uh, be a constitutional amendment. So if its effects were not positive for the economy, it would be almost impossible to uh, pull back. It was before, uh, it was proposed before for a ballot initiative and the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts said, no, this is not constitutional. The proponents thereafter went uh, through a legislative route. They had legislators propose it for a constitutional, uh, for uh, as a constitutional amendment, and that was approved originally at the first uh, at the the uh, one of two sessions in 2019. Uh, in order to become a ballot initiative, it has to be passed by two uh, subsequent uh, legislative sessions. So that could be any time from let's say late May this year through next year, which is the second session that it would have uh, been voted on by the legislature. And if that is the case, if it is approved at that constitutional convention. Uh, it would go to a popular vote in November of uh, 2022, so about a year and a half from now. And if approved by the voters, it would be uh, effectively a constitutional amendment as of January 1st, 2023. So you've outlined that wonderfully. Um, I want to bring up a recent uh, poll I saw in the news this past week uh, conducted by the Massachusetts Teachers Union, which said um, when asked uh, voters, 73% uh, thought uh, a 4% tax on uh, millionaires, if you will, people who earn more than a million dollars in a year, as you say, in any way, um, that, that was popular. 73% favored it, 27% uh, did not. Um, what are the promises of this tax? People can't merely be in favor of taxes. There must be uh, some goal. What does the state propose those who advocate for this change? Where would that money go? How much would it be? Uh, do you have that data in front of you? Yeah, so um, the, the, the proponents really, I mean, what this is about are a couple of things. One is an emotional argument they're making. You know, those millionaires pointing at some nebulous figure in the corner that no one knows uh, have been uh, making out incredibly well, and that's just unfair. And, you know, to some of that, I think anyone with a heart that beats would say, you know, during COVID, it's true that people, some people, a, a small number of companies have done extremely well, and those have been highlighted in the press, and so that seems a little unfair. The, the other thing that the, the, um, the proponents are pointing at is um, – they're saying that they're going to have this money go to education and to transportation. Uh, the fact is, the um, in the the court proceedings back in 2018, when this was brought to the Supreme Judicial Court, it was abundantly clear and argued by both the people in favor of the tax and also the late Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice that the tax did not necessarily have to go to education and transportation. Uh, so we all we know that it does not have to go there. And in fact, in 2019, during the constitutional convention that debated this, the legislature refused, rejected two amendments that would have enforced the money going to education and transportation. So it is absolutely arguable that this could lead to no additional money for education and transportation. I think, as you know, you know, Pioneer cares deeply about education. We've been proponents of additional educational funding uh, for places like uh, the Brockton's and the New Bedford's of the world that had been underfunded through the previous Chapter 70 iterations. So, you know, saying that you should spend a little more money in education, that's something that's anathema to this organization anyway. 
We'd like to see it paired up with accountability measures. And we think that education investments are some of the smartest investments you can make. But that said, this, this is not the vehicle that's going to get that done. When you have a legislature that votes down two amendments that would have enforced with the approval of this amendment, the money's going to those two purposes. It's not going to. So I think a lot of people are misinformed about what the money will go to. I mean, I think the, the legislature's made it abundantly clear that's not how they're reading it. So by the legislature's own account, they had the opportunity to uh, constrain their choices and say this must go to education transportation. They said, we don't want that. We want fungible funds. We want to be able to use this wherever we like. And what you're saying is implied in that is education money may not actually go up at all. Look, if you look at the example of California, uh, California passed something similar to what we're thinking about, but not nearly as big, by the way, not nearly as big in terms of the impact on the tax uh, rates. Um, and they have something special. They have a minimum spending requirement that requires new revenues, a certain amount to go into education. Uh, literally, like a one, less, of, less than 1%, a fraction of 1% above that spending requirement went to education. And in fact, as we looked at it, the, the new hiring for education was ridiculously low after that happened. It was all being passed as a, um, the argument was that we would hire many more teachers, but actual hiring of teachers was, again, I believe somewhere in the range of 1% above where they were before. So, I mean, it's um, to, to say this is what it's for now, this is going to the general coffers and people might want to argue that we should be giving the legislature more money just generally. But I think it's a hard argument to make, especially when, again, we've not used any rainy day funds during this once in a century uh, event called COVID. And on top of that, we are receiving tens of billions of dollars from the federal government to make up for revenue shortfalls that frankly haven't happened. Last year, we were about 100 million or something like that below our budget, which is remarkable. It tells you a lot about the resilience of business in this state. And um, this year, we're actually running billions ahead of projections. So okay. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a hard argument to make. They don't even know where to spend the money they have right now. Sure. I think the estimates they, the advocates had was uh, this this bill would uh, uh, bring in $2 billion additional dollars to a state that uh, clearly has enough money, even after one year of pandemic. So uh, very, very interesting. Um, so if, if we say that the uh, goals for the money, uh, there, there's specious claims about where it's apt to go. Paint for me a picture of the kind of person in Massachusetts who makes a million dollars a year. Uh, are we talking about um, billionaires or, or put a face on the person who's likely to be affected by this? You know, it's a really great question, Joan. I appreciate you asking it because no one really asks that. They say, oh, those people. Again, the nebulous person in the corner that nobody knows. Um, there are somewhere around 20,000 people who annually make uh, over, I shouldn't say people, these are households. Okay, households that make over one million dollars in a year. Um, most of those people, or sorry, most of those households, make over one million dollars once or twice in ten years. That is, they are people who are selling an asset. These are people who are retiring or selling a business as they're retiring or selling a home and they're retiring, and. Um, that's the majority of the people. So this is, in essence, a retirement tax. The other tranche of people, if you want to try to characterize it, are um, there are about 13,000, 14,000 who are small businesses. These are pass-through S-corps, 
partnerships that file their um, they're they're essentially uh, having their business flow through their their personal their household tax filing. Um, and a lot of that is money that let's say you make and you want to reinvest in your company. So it shows up as a profit, but it's really not because you're plowing money back into the business. You're a millionaire. So um, those are the biggest tranches by far. There are people who make capital gains. Uh, short-term capital gains looms large in that picture. Uh, and there are some people, very small group, who are routinely um, again, households that are making over a million dollars, uh, you know, three or four times in ten years. So this is um, this is not someone who's um, nebulous. This is uh, people who are actually running businesses and hiring people. These are people who are retiring who get a little kick in the pants on the way out. That's what this tax is about. Uh, this this resonates uh, well with me. I, I was a small business owner for some time, uh, as any small business owner who's listening to us can attest. Uh, you're, you have a lot of deferred income. You work for zero for many, many years, maybe even a decade, uh, while reliably paying a payroll and ensuring everyone else goes home with a 100% of their paycheck. And ultimately, at the end of the road, you do you do sell, uh, and that event may put you over the limit. And what you're saying is, a lot of people work very hard for an entire lifetime, and that payoff now becomes substantially smaller owing to this tax. That's exactly right. Hmm. Said now, much more with with what greater articulation by the host. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I lived it, so I, I should know something about it. There's another element, and in, in some of your testimony, you talked about the fact that uh, you know we're always looking backwards and saying, "Look, I've, I've worked a lifetime. Now I'm going to sell this business, and I'm going to be hit with this tax." There are many young people coming out of our, our fantastic schools thinking about where am I going to build this company that ultimately I'll, I'll sell to Google or, you know, we all dream big and we think, okay, where do I want to build this company that's going to hire high-tech workers, who's going to you know, enhance my community? Where do I choose that, that firm? Do you think this, this tax, knowing now the glide path it's on for 2023, are those young entrepreneurs considering uh, the consequence of this tax, do you believe? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, this has always been a difficult state to, if you're going to build a company and you want to um, to sell it in the near term, uh, you probably want to start it here and you probably want to go elsewhere anyway. So I, I'm not really sure it's going to affect their decisions, to be quite honest. What I, what I do think is it's going, to be, it's going to dissuade a lot of companies from wanting to establish affiliates here and, and that sort of thing. I think you're coming out of MIT and you're starting, you're coming up with a startup you have many other tripwires that might have you leave the state earlier on. Um, we're a high-tax place to do business already, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, the, the, the problem is we're going to dissuade a lot of people from coming here. And what we will likely do is we will have places that could expand here, decide to expand elsewhere, or we will have um, uh, them incentivized to relocate employees elsewhere. Uh, so th those are a, a couple of the things I'm really, really worried about, Joe. Well, you've touched on some of the uh, the episodes we've had on Hubwonk that have touched on these issues. We've uh, talked with an economist from California who tracked uh, what happened when they imposed um, similar uh, tax on high earners. Uh, we've talked about Connecticut um, and uh, what effects they've had. They've had effectively a flat economy ever since imposing a, a substantial tax on, on wealthier uh, residents. So there's a really important point in there about California and Connecticut that maybe if you don't mind, I'll just interject sure. with one, one point. You know, the, the, it goes to your previous question. The exodus of businesses from California has actually now led to the first time in decades 
a uh, reduction in population in California. It's not just that businesses have left. In some some years, we're talking about 500, 1,000, 1,800 businesses leaving, some of them marquee businesses. What that led to uh, was what people thought the, the amount of revenue that, that the, the California tax would bring in was actually halved, if not even lower than that. And what people don't recognize about Connecticut is that by imposing taxes on high earners, however it may have felt good if you aren't a high earner, I get that. Um, they have since that time they passed that tax, their state budget has increased by 22 or 23% over 12 years since that happened. Massachusetts, over the same time we held our taxes low, stable, I should say low, they're not low. We held them <laughs> stable. <laughs> right. And as a result, we saw much higher than uh, average for the country job growth. And that's the key to the kingdom for state budget growth. We actually saw our state budget increase by 63%. Our neighbor, Connecticut, 22%. Massachusetts, 63%. So I think that people, if they're thinking this is a great way to bring in revenues, it's a short term, sure. The first year, second year, it'll bring in substantially. Uh, higher revenues. But longer term, you will deplete the cadre of entrepreneurs. You'll deplete the cadre of businesses that want to locate here or want to grow here. And that's the problem. Sure. As you say, California is a good uh, case study in that they're not just losing Elon Musk, but they're losing uh, his new factories and those employees. Not only did uh, California see um, reduction in population, they lost the congressional seat. Uh, so uh, this is very, very real. You know, um, Elon Musk has this great quote where he says, you know, uh, California right now is a forest of redwoods and the little trees can't grow. And there's high dependence on those super high earners right now. And that's not a great place for the state to be. Sure. Let's talk about one other state uh, that probably is rooting for this to pass, uh, that thinks this is a terrific tax. Uh, I'm talking about our neighbors to the north in New Hampshire. Uh, we did cover, do an episode of Hub Wong talking about there's about 123,000 people who live in New Hampshire who work in Massachusetts. There was some disagreement about where they should pay their tax when they're mandated to stay at home. Uh, do they owe to New Hampshire where they are working or Massachusetts where their employer is? Uh, but let's talk about uh, the competitive nature of states and how they compete for for the best and brightest and 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 business. What can you say about this uh, tax having an effect on our competitiveness as a state? For for workers, for talent, it's uh, a great question. Look, we are uh, Massachusetts is a high powered economy because we're able to attract talent. Uh, the the issue that arises after this is that young people, especially after COVID, are um, they don't all have to be in Boston. The attractiveness of Boston is, is the lure is great, but uh, I don't think it's enough to overcome many other uh, benefits of remote work. Uh, look, you save on average potentially even ten thousand, eleven thousand, twelve thousand dollars per employee when you have them work at a distance. Uh, the the home prices are lower. Uh, people during COVID have learned to work at a distance and enjoy it to some degree, some people a lot. Uh, so and if you're starting a family, it makes it um, all the more attractive. So I think post-COVID, when we've all learned new habits, and in fact, I, in talking to people, often encounter people are now 
used to working remotely and are much more resistant to coming back into the office, um, that, that competition's really great because it's not just savings for the employer. It's time savings driving back and forth. It is uh, savings of money in terms of the, the, the train passes and or fuel and parking and all the rest, the headache. It's a benefit to their uh, mental health, if you will, to stay out of that mess, you know, a two-hour commute back and forth. So I think it's actually, um, especially in those highly mobile industries, certainly not restaurants, but in highly mobile industries like uh, the financial services and research and all that sort of stuff where we are high-powered, it is going to be a huge challenge. So trends that already existed, you know, we've talked about people out, out, the outflow created when we uh, raise taxes on high earners. The pandemic has had a permanent effect on our behavior, meaning we've made it more likely, more possible to work from anywhere. And trends towards lower tax states are going to be accelerated by virtue of the fact that one can work now from virtually anywhere. That's right. Now, I want to get back to um, perhaps a more legalistic issue uh, that you talked about at the top of the show. And you said this is a, a constitutional amendment. And, and as I understand it, um, it's been very, very hard. We have two consecutive uh, uh, passages by the legislature and then a mandate or a, a vote by the voters uh, to impose it. I suppose we'd have to do all those things uh, to undo this, right? Uh, this is after, let's say, down the road, we discover what perhaps Connecticut or California is now discovering. These taxes have a net negative impact on the state. And we, we essentially have to procedurally unwind it. How, will it remain a million dollars forever? I mean, you and I, if we live long enough, we may be uh, all millionaires or perhaps it may cost a million dollars to buy a cup of coffee. We don't want to all trip over this, uh, this threshold. How is this indexed for the future? And, and what do you think about the way it's indexed? Yeah, no, the indexing is actually a bit of a, a bit of a sham. Uh, it's, um, index on the CPI, Consumer Price Index, and that has been rising much more slowly than household income, the, the value of homes, value of other assets, uh, commercial real estate values, and all the rest. So what we will see, we've done a piece of research on this, Joe, where we showed that I believe it was by 2038, it'll be you know the equivalent of someone who is making shouldn't say again, someone, a household that makes in any one year around $700,000 would be subject to the tax. Over time, that will come down uh, and it will reach definitely into uh, people who are in the middle of, uh, the upper middle of the pack, people who are making $500,000, families make $500,000, let's say they sell an asset in any one year that's worth something like $200,000, they'll get caught up by it. So it's, um, it's not a great way to index. And in fact, the legislature in thinking about its own um, raises doesn't use the CPI index. They, they use something different that's more generous to them. But you know, I guess the amendment process, what is problematic about the amendment process, I think is uh, the following. Let's say this does have a negative impact and let's say we have another emergency of any kind where 300,000 people are out of work who are in work, who are at work a year before. That's exactly where we are right now. A year ago, we had 300,000 more people in the workforce. They're not in the workforce. It's because restaurants had closed for a long time, because retail outlets had closed for a long time, because their jobs went away, because there just wasn't enough work, there wasn't enough demand. So let's say you wanna um, make sure that you get people back to work and you create incentives to entrepreneurs and to uh, job creators to come back into Massachusetts to address that. It's going to be a heck of a lot harder. 
So we're, 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 our hands will be constrained uh, well into the future. And what we will have created is um, a constant and uh, concentrated uh, set of interests who will keep pushing for this. Those are the public unions. I mean, people call Raise Up uh, an organization of various um, of uh, dozens of groups. It's that's a look. Anybody who looks at the flow of money knows that it's really Massachusetts Teachers Association and it's the Services Employees International Union. Those are the two big groups, the the big daddies on this one, and um, they um, they're pushing for this because they want to have more employment and better benefits for themselves. I find that a little incongruous with the fact that there are three hundred thousand people out of work right now who are in the private uh, market. And frankly, the public sector employees have not really been touched by COVID at all. They've never been harmed by it, nor do I wish that they are. I'm, I wish them all, all well. I wish everyone well. But I think we really have to focus right now on the 300,000 people who are out of work right now. And I would be, I'm worried about the impact in the near term. But in the future, should this pass, should it be passed by the legislature and be before the, be before the voters and they pass it as well, I'd be worried about our ability to actually be nimble enough to respond to an emergency, or frankly, just the need to make ourselves more competitive. So what you're saying is um, those 300,000 people who are now out of work that weren't out of work before this uh, COVID-19 epidemic, uh, they need something called a job. (laughs) Jobs come from employers. And if we uh, use a different term for the people being affected by this tax, we're talking about employers or future employers. So what we're doing is saying with this tax, making it less likely those employers will employ and thereby not helping a whit any of the people who are now unemployed. Exactly right. That's powerful. You know, now, they, in New Jersey, when they did something like this, Joe, they took money, they said, we're going to take money from, quote unquote, the rich, and they created a middle class tax cut. You know, in, in, in that case, it's even slightly better than what we're doing here, which is a large increase on the upper end. But no, nothing back for people actually been harmed. It's actually a, a remarkable thing. And I'll tell you one other thing that's remarkable, if you don't mind. Last week, the Massachusetts Teachers Association and the SE and SEIU announced their campaign to push this tax. On the day that they announced it, the Massachusetts Department of Revenue uh, announced that um, the state has brought in uh, $400, $400 million more in tax revenues in one month because of businesses coming back, um, this year we'll be running about $2 billion perhaps above and beyond where we thought we'd be in the budget. Um, We're on our way if we allow the the economy to grow back and jobs to grow back, we're on our way to deliver surpluses for the state in the billions of dollars. And yet they want to truncate that. They want to stop that progress by putting in place a tag. I just don't, don't really get it. Yes, it seems like, uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it seems like they're looking at a short-term benefit, more money in the coffers of the state. Uh, but in the long term, as we pointed out, in the other states' experiences, ultimately over time, the, the unintended consequences is there's less revenue. Ultimately, uh, in the future, there'll be less money to spend on transportation, on education, because there'll be fewer jobs and uh, less industry. Uh, we're getting close to the uh, end of our show. So I want to, uh, we don't like to have uh, Habwonk just be a, a session where we talk about uh, problems. We want to we wanna address what we could do uh, effectively uh, in some constructive way. Those listening, uh, uh, many are engaged either as legislators or those who write to their legislators. What would uh, our listeners best me- next move be if they want to inform their legislators that this seems 
like a like a, a, a bad idea. It, the money isn't going to where they want it to go. It's it's affecting employers who are likely to uh, um, the future jobs for our listeners may be diminished. Um, what what can they do? Well, I, I, there there are many things. I mean, obviously. Uh, it's to reach out to your legislator and, and and say to your legislator what you think. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's a bad idea? Uh, everyone ha- can make their own judgment on this on the basis of the facts. I urge people not to do it on the basis of emotion. Uh, facts are a good thing. Um, second thing is I think business leaders, uh, there there is noise of uh, business leaders coming together to put together a letter to the legislature. I would urge all business leaders, whether they're for it or against it, to let their legislators know what they want. This is a democracy. Let people know. Uh, that's an important uh, way to to engage in things, especially something something as important and as uh, generationally, if not longer, important as a, a constitutional amendment. So we're, we're at the end of our show. I, I want to, uh, of course, if, if our listeners know Hubwonk, they know a pioneer, but where can uh, our listeners find your research on pioneer and, um, I, or including your testimony that was recently offered, your written testimony to the, uh, to the uh, um, revenue committee, uh, where can they find that? They can find that at www.pioneerinstitute.org. Wonderful. Well, Jim, this has been a very informative uh, uh, episode. I hope our listeners were able to follow along. There's a lot of uh, detail that you, you covered, uh, but I think you did it well. And I think uh, we, we know now what we're facing with uh, this HV um, 86. Thank you for your time, Jim. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. If you share us with friends or offer a favorable review or ideally give us a five-star rating, it would make Hubwonk easier for others to find us. If you would like to offer comments or suggestions or ideas for future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.